As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your, your Bibles and open them up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. We're kicking off our, our Christmas series this morning, and we've entitled it The Promised Keeper. And the reason we are focusing on this concept, the promised keeper, this theme of the promised keeper, is that because when it comes to Christmas, I think that many people, when they refer to the story of Christmas, in their minds, they simply mean the nativity. They mean, when they think of the Christmas story, simply Mary and Joseph, they think of angels and shepherds and wise men and a stable because there's no room at the inn. And of course, all those things are incredibly important to the Christmas story, but to say that that is itself the story of Christmas is to say that Frodo destroying the ring of power is the story of Middle Earth, or that the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is the story of Narnia. You see, those are integral parts of the story, perhaps even the climax of the story, the focal point of the story, but they are not the whole story. In fact, those events were, if they were, excuse me, all that you knew of the story, the greater story, then you're actually missing the true significance of those events. You're missing how important they truly are, how revolutionary they truly are. And this is the same when it comes to the story of Christmas. The nativity is simply a story within a grander, greater story. The part, not greater than the whole, but instead bringing fulfillment and purpose and meaning to the whole. My point is this. Simply put, you can't understand the story of Christmas, not truly, not fully, until you see it within the greater, grander story of the entire Bible. And you can't understand the story of the Bible unless you start at the very beginning. And let me press this further to you, because if you're here this morning and you care very little about Christmas, let me just say this to you, that understanding all of this actually helps you understand yourself the way you were intended to know yourself. You can't understand who you truly are. You can't understand why you exist until you understand the very heart of Scripture and the entire story of the Bible. And the book of Genesis is, by definition, a book of beginnings. It is where we see the origins of the universe. It is where we are first introduced to God and to humanity and to all of creation. And it is here that the story of Christmas truly begins. I want us, as we work through, broadly speaking, an over kind of arching view, a bird's eye view of Genesis 1 to 3, I want us to begin to pay attention to some of the, the clues that the author of the book of Genesis, Moses, gives to us to understand the heart of Christmas and the heart of all of creation. And I want to do so by asking four questions that I believe this morning will bring us greater clarity when it comes to Christmas and greater clarity when it comes to ourselves in relation to God. The first question that I want to address this morning is this, what were we meant to be? What were we meant to be? What were we created to be? What is our designed purpose Genesis chapter 1 begins by explaining that in the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. 
that begins a series of statements where God, over six days, creates all of creation, all of created things as we know them. The very beginning of the Bible indicates that the universe is a created place. It, cre- it is created with harmony and with order. And you'll notice as you work through the creation story, for, for example, in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And on and on we work through the first passage of Scripture. What is so commonly known is that when God creates, he does so with order and structure and intentionality, and he closes off his creative activity with the phrase, and it is good. It is good in the sense that it fulfills its designed function. And yet, for all the concern with creation of the universe and its creatures, the text actually unfolds for us that there is a specific goal to which everything is directed, and that is found on the creation activity of God on the sixth day, the creative work of humanity itself. Look with me at verse 26 through 30 of chapter 1. Quickly, God moves through the first five days of creation with giving very little detail, and all of a sudden, there is a pause in the text, and something unique happens. There's a a sort of pregnant theological pause where God here now takes counsel with himself to begin to create humanity in such a unique and special way. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. There is in this picture the inherent understanding that there is peace and harmony over all the earth. And the engine that drives the storyline of the Bible is the relationship between the creator and his human creatures on the earth. All of creation comes about by the divine word of God in this predictable, almost formulaic manner, let there be and there was. But as I mentioned, there is here this pregnant theological pause before the creation of humanity. God takes counsel with himself before speaking. You say, why is that so important? It's because humanity is created uniquely from the depths of the divine heart. 
From the very beginning, God had his heart set on humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. God had at his heart this concept of relationship and a covenant love with his creatures, especially human beings. And you'll notice in verse 27 that he highlights this in a couple of ways. The, the one really I want to show you in verse 27 is this, that the word created is used three times. That, that is not by accident. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That threefold repetition is here used to indicate that the very goal and center of God's creation is anthropological. Humanity is separate and distinct from all of God's other creation. Tell that to PETA. That was a joke. The sheer number of words devoted to the sixth day speak of its greater importance. That importance is defined specifically for us as being made, notice those words again that we're so familiar with if you've been in the church for any length of time, in the image of God or in the likeness of God. Again, it speaks to the uniqueness amongst all of creation and the context actually makes it clear that humanity is uniquely related to both God and to the created order. You say, how so? In what way are we created in the image of God? What is this uniqueness that God wants to spell out? Let me at least give you a few things to think about that come right out of the context of this passage. You don't have to think too hard to see some of these things, but I hope you do see them. First of all, humanity was created to exercise a unique role. That role is defined in the text as dominion over all of the earth. In other words, humanity's main task in God's creative purposes is to exercise rule and lordship over the earth, to represent in that sense God's rule over the world. Humanity here is seen as being crowned with royalty, the royalty of creation, Adam and Eve being kings and queens. Secondly, notice this, that humanity was created to enjoy a unique relationship. And this really is the heart of why humanity exercises their unique role. Because they're built and designed and created with the very breath of God. Made in his image to know him, to experience what it is to walk in fellowship and relationship with him. You have to connect this to your purpose in life, to everybody around you. All of humanity lives, listen, with this inherent purpose built into their very soul. They were created to live in a unique, precious, special relationship with God. He creates us like himself. God being Trinity, living in constant relationship and fellowship with himself. So too, we are designed to live in constant fellowship with him. Third and finally, humanity was created to exhibit a unique reflection. You see, in enjoying this unique relationship and exercising this unique role, God's intention in one sense was that we would exhibit this unique reflection of him to the earth, to the world. So humanity come, becomes kind of like a mirror uh, as we are vice regents 
ruling on behalf of the greater ruler. We become these mirrors to the rest of creation that show forth who God is in all of his kindness. God allows humanity the privilege and the joy of reverberating all that he is to the world around them. They reflect the glory of God the Father by obedience to his word and his commands. And you see, you cannot understand the flow of the biblical story without understanding this right here, that humanity was at the very beginning created to bring the world under the dominion of the image of God, to live in perfect relationship with God and to display the glory of God. And let me take this a step further as I did in the introduction. You can't understand yourself properly unless you understand this, for this is what you were created for. We move into chapter two, and we see that God has given Adam and Eve a context to fulfill these mandates that he has given to them. Specifically, let's just look at verse seven through nine first. He says, then the Lord God formed the man of, from the dust of the ground. Is kind of honing in on, on that day, that sixth day when God created Adam and Eve. He created man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a suitable a helper so he be fit for him. And he goes on to unfold the creation of Eve out of Adam and the beauty of that relationship that, that they now enjoy together. But you see, what happens here is that God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is at that point in God's creative work, the very dwelling place of God. It is a temple of sorts where heaven touches earth, where God walks in fellowship with Adam and Eve throughout the garden. It is as close to the presence of God that Adam and Eve could possibly be. And they're called to work the garden. The idea there being not just tending to plants, but actually expanding and extending the borders of the garden so that one day where the presence of God dwells with geographical borders, one day through the work and efforts of man on God's behalf, listen, the presence of God will dwell over all the earth in this special, unique way. He calls humanity into his mission, into his work. And this is a job that cannot be done alone. Aside from the lack of companionship that Adam is missing, that void that he's experiencing, there is a bigger picture at work here. You see, God has the procreation perspective where man, Adam himself, was not going to be able to do this job alone. 
It required a community effort, and so God produces the means to develop community. We're doing a great job of that. He gives them one another. He calls them to be fruitful and multiply. And notice this, within the context of this dominion mandate, it is to fill the earth. You see, within this, we need to understand God's design for humanity and for the church of Jesus Christ. And listen, what one day will actually be in completion. There is a sense here in which God is saying, look, that there is a shared joy in this mission. There is a shared responsibility and there is a shared authority that I have given to you. the very beginning, Genesis establishes the domain over which humans actually are to realize their humanity. The world is created by the command of God. The Garden of Eden becomes the primary habitat of human beings until their exile from it. It is at this very moment in the scope of history, it is their home. It is the place where they are most satisfied. It is the place where they experience the greatest source of enjoyment their hearts longed for, the very presence of God. You know, there's something, isn't there, about being home? There's something about coming home when you've been away for a long period of time. I mean, every one of us knows this experience, whether it's been a short or a long trip, whether it's been a great vacation to a beautiful, tropical location that many of you are dreaming of right now. You can go there and experience tremendous blessings and joy, but for some reason, coming home is so unique, isn't it? It doesn't matter where you've been and how good it was. When you get home, it's just a sense of relief. Like this is where you were meant to be. This is what it is for Adam and Eve in the garden. And it reminds us, listen, this idea of longing, it reminds us that we are created as creatures of longing. And when we misdiagnose the object of this longing, we become frustrated and disappointed. When we try to fill the longing in our heart with things that were never intended to fill it, it leaves us dissatisfied. It leaves us emptier than when we started. You see, our longings for relationship are frustrated by conflict. Our longings for satisfaction get frustrated by discontent and a lack of gratitude for what we have. Our longings for personal significance and value and worth get frustrated by our own inadequacies. J.R. Tolkien diagnoses the roots of our longing and he says it like this. He says, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. The longings of our hearts are frustrated by the sense of exile, but these longings are properly satisfied in the dwelling place of God originally found in Eden. From the very beginning, God has created it this way. That his presence in his dwelling place satiates our longings for relationship. It satiates our longings for satisfaction. It satiates our longings for significance. And the opening chapters of Genesis show how God intended these longings to be properly satisfied in Eden with him. Which leads us to our second question. Why did it all go wrong? I mean, isn't that the question we want answers to? 
Why did it have to be ruined? If this was what we were meant to experience, why did it all go wrong? How did this happen? This is not our experience right now. We slug our way through life. We seek to fill the void with all kinds of things that never actually do. What we learn in chapter three is that the relationship fails at the very beginning, and instead of subduing the world as they were called to, they are subdued by it. In fact, look at verse, chapter two, verse 25. And this sets the scene for chapter three. Here's what it says. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, what in the world is the point of mentioning that? So the point is this, that they are living in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship with God and each other. There's no need to be ashamed of anything because there is no sin. There's no perversion. There's no hurting one another. There's no pain. There's no using each other. There's nothing of the sort. There, there is only right now existing pure, selfless, sacrificial love for God and for one another, and everything is amazing. Everything was good, that's what, that's what it's saying to us here. Everything was so good until one fateful day in the garden. Look at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, listen, the first clue that something wasn't right was a talking animal, okay? That's just, that's for free. That, like... At that moment, Eve should have thought, when we named him, he said nothing. Now he's speaking. I say that tongue in cheek, but I want you to know that there is some very clear implications of this. There is right now with this talking serpent, whatever that is, whatever it looked like, at this moment, it is an indication that there has been a disruption in the created order. Something's wrong. Something has happened. And it's not just that he talks that becomes the problem. It is what he says. And I want you to follow the logic because this is so instructive for how our sin and our temptation often plays itself out in our lives. Just follow the way that this serpent who is, according to Revelation chapter 12, identified as Satan himself. He said to the woman, did God actually say? I, I want you to see here the kind of the progress or the pathway of sin, and it begins here with doubt. It begins with sowing the seeds of doubt, of causing Eve to question what God had said. Now, let's be very clear from uh, at, at the get-go here that God was not unclear with what he said. God was overly clear with what he had said. There is, at this point, no reason to doubt. There is no cause for confusion in the mind of Eve. There's no reason for any of that. But right out the gates, we see that it is the goal of this serpent, of Satan, to cause Eve to doubt the word of God. Did God say this? Did he actually say? And then you'll notice that it flows directly into this next problem 
He distorts the word of God. Notice what's said here. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know what the truth of that statement is? No, God never said anything like that. He he never said we couldn't eat from any tree. He did say that we couldn't eat from a tree, just one, singular. But do you see how subtle and crafty the serpent is? Do you see how that rings true in this text? He distorts the word of God. He begins to create more and more confusion. Eve is trying to work her way through this deception, and she says in verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Actually, God didn't say that, did he? Lest you die, he did say that. And here it is in verse four, he moves from doubting to distorting into denying full-fledged denial of the word of God. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. You see, at the core of this deception is the temptation towards unbelief. I want to argue for you this morning that really the sin behind the sin, the greater sin, not, not the actual eating of the fruit, but the sin behind that sin itself was the sin of unbelief. It was the failure to hear God's word and to believe God's word and to have faith and walk by faith because of what God had already said. And I wanna argue that for you because I really believe at the very heart of all of our sin, ultimately, when it's all said and done, at the very heart of all of our sin, you could trace it back to this core issue of unbelief. I do not believe that what God has for me is better than what this will provide me in the moment. I do not believe that God is really looking out for my best interest. I don't believe God knows what he's talking about or I don't believe that it was true. And that's what the serpent was doing with Eve. You say he's looking at her and he's saying you should not trust God. No, no, in fact, you cannot trust God. He's a liar. He doesn't want what's best for you. And if you want true happiness, if you want true satisfaction, it will not be found in submission to him, but in independence from him. Isn't this the message that our world functions on? Independence, freedom, you satisfy your own needs any way you choose. That's how you experience true joy and happiness and satisfaction in your life. You are your own king. Nobody needs to rule you but you. The temptation is so subtle. It has very little, by the way, to do with the fruit. Did you notice that? It has very little to do with the fruit. It is indirectly about the nature of God. And it is very indirectly about the nature of Eve. He has to make her doubt what God says and make her feel that God is a liar and that God is jealous, that she might gain something which she in turn suggests. Listen, it suggests that Eve lacks something good from God. 
If I could put it simply, it'll be on the screen behind me here because I think it's helpful for us to process this. Satan must convince Eve that she is not what she is, perfect and complete, in order to make her become what she is not, broken and empty. Listen, this is what sin does. This is the temptation that we experience in our own hearts. Sin and Satan, listen, they convince us that what we need is not found in God, that we're not perfect and complete in Him, and instead, it causes us to find what we think we need in things that only leave us more broken and more empty. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks often of unbelief. In fact, if you do a word study on the word unbelief, you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark, especially, Jesus is constantly astonished at people's unbelief. Jesus says in John 8, 24, I I told you, he's speaking to the Pharisees, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, the issue there for salvation, when it comes to your own personal salvation before the Lord, is the issue of belief versus unbelief. Will you believe that God says he is the way, the truth, and the life? That nobody gets to the Father but through him? Or will you believe that there's some other way, uh, some humanly invented way, or some other satanically devised way? John 16, verse 8, one of the reasons God gives the Holy Spirit, listen to this, it says, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and listen to this, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. One of the very roles of the Spirit of God right now, listen, as the preaching of God's word goes out, as the gospel goes forth, God says he has actually given the Holy Spirit to us. The Spirit of God moves in people's hearts and minds to show them that in their sin, what they're guilty of most of all is unbelief. They will not believe God. They will not turn to him because they do not trust him. And the Spirit of God wants to convict sinners of that because, listen, when you realize that you can only be saved by faith, belief in Him, there is hope for you. Every false way you've been seeking to satisfy your soul, every false and errant longing you've been seeking after, listen, it is washed away, it is pushed to the side because you have found the fountain of life, the fountain of joy, the fountain of peace, the fountain of rest. What's fascinating, when you look at this entire situation, I wonder if you you noticed something. Did did you catch where the tree of life is placed in the garden? Did you catch that? Right in the middle. Have you ever thought about why the tree is right in the middle? The one place that they could go to, they, they were commanded to not eat from, that if they do, they will surely die. That one tree is placed front and center. Everything seems to revolve around this tree in the garden. And I just want, have you, have you thought, like, why in the world would God do that? I mean, did he want Adam and Eve to fail? I mean, wouldn't that be like us walking down into the children's ministry right now and putting a bucket full of candy right in front of them and saying, okay, this is going right in the middle of the room. Have fun playing. Nobody touch the candy or else there's really severe consequences. All right, love you, bye. By the way, the candy's amazing. 
It's really good. Could he not have put it out of reach? (laughs) See, when something is forbidden, in a human context, we hide it away and make it hard to get, right? I mean, think about it. We lock things up that we know are forbidden, that we want to protect people from. Guns, money, secret plans, our daughters. But if we provide, or providing to be access, we actually tend to put something out in a central visible location, right? We're saying, this is for you. Go ahead. We don't want you to miss out on this. It seems so backwards. So why? Why is this put in a central visible location? Here's why. Listen. So its presence reminds them. You see, there are signs that we have all around us. Their presence reminds us of something very important. There are street signs and stoplights or trophies that we put in cases or crosses or steeples on churches or family photos we put on the wall. These serve as reminders, signs that are pointing to something else, something important to keep at the forefront of our minds, something that we never want to forget You see, the tree with the forbidden fruit was just such a reminder for Adam and Eve. The forbidden tree was primarily a sign to remind Adam and Eve, even, listen, even in your dominion over paradise, to reject any idea of independence from God would be foolish. Perfect lords over creation, though they were, they were not lords over the creator. You see, the tree was not designed to kill or to harm them. It was designed to keep and protect them. It wasn't designed to steal their joy, but to give them their joy, to keep the heart of man turned towards a Lord who was a greater Lord than they were. And so don't look at the garden And the forbidden tree as if God was somehow withholding something great from them, but rather God was continually reminding them of what was truly great, that their freedom and joy was ultimately found not in rebellious independence from, but in loving submission to him. Freedom operates under God's ultimate rule. And this is a message that we need to hear in our hearts If you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you think you're a Christian, wherever you're at, you need to hear this message. We all do. You are in one sense Lord's, but he is the Lord. You have a degree of control, but you do not have ultimate control. The tree was a gracious reminder of where true joy, satisfaction, and freedom can be found in humble and loving submission to a good, gracious, and loving God. This is what God wants us to believe every moment of every day, every time we're faced with sin. Eve should have looked at the tree and she should have been reminded, this isn't about what I can get out of it. This isn't about me becoming God. This is about me submitting to God as God. It's there that she failed. And this is the battleground of every human heart. You see, in a single foolish moment, they failed to believe And the universe is still feeling the consequences of it today. Which leads us to the next question, well, what did it change? What did it change? Look down at chapter 3, verse 7. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? What a fascinating statement. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, (laughs) you got to love this, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Good one, Adam. Very courageous. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see how all of this is pointing the blame actually back at God? God, this is your fault. The Bible insists that the heart of all human problems is rebellion against the God who is our maker, whose image we bear and whose rule we seek to overthrow. There is not one single problem in your personal life right now. There is not one single problem in the world, global conflict, whatever you you might see on the news, not one single problem that cannot be traced back to this singular issue of rebellion against God. All of our problems, without exception, can be traced to this fundamental source, a rebellion of unbelief, and the just, listen, this, this, the just curse of God that we have earned by our rebellion. Before we get into what the actual curse is in verse 14 and on, I, I want you to see from the passage we just read the effects of the curse playing out immediately. I want you to note this, it is first and foremost, the effects of the curse, they're first and foremost, listen, personal and relational. You see, in verse seven, we're reminded, again, that up to this point, Adam and Eve, they did not know good and evil. They didn't even know they were naked. But in an instant, they were exposed, literally, listen, and spiritually. They were exposed and they began to experience in a very personal and radical way the effects of sin and evil, the effects of their own wickedness and their own sinful bent and desire. Their eyes were wide open now to a new reality that they had never experienced before. Matthew Henry, Henry the, the great Bible commentator says these words, just listen to his statement on the effects of the fall of sin. He says this, they saw the happiness they had fallen from and the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, his likeness and image lost, dominion over the creatures gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved, listen to this line, and felt a disorder in their own spirits of which they had never before been conscious. 
They saw a law in their members warring against the law of their minds and captivating them both to sin and wrath. They saw themselves disrobed of all their ornaments and in signs of honor, degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciences. In an instant, shame and guilt swept over them like a tidal wave. It was so painful for them that they immediately took steps to deny it or at least to cover it up. They tried to cover it up by denial, by flight, and by fig leaves. Fear of condemnation overwhelmed them like a blazing fire. They instantly felt alienated from God, not welcomed in his presence. They knew that the relationship had been fractured and so they hid themselves. Believing that maybe God wouldn't see them and see their sin. They identified their nakedness, which again, strangely, had never occurred to them before. The intimacy of their own relationship was broken. Intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And so you see, listen, before the fall, they were never aware of their nakedness because they were never selfish. They were never abusing one another. They never lived for the pleasures of self. They lived for the pleasure of the other and for God. But here in this moment, all of a sudden, the nakedness that they experience, that they acknowledge of themselves, it demonstrates that now they are acutely aware of self. Insecurity, humiliation, fear broke into what was once a safe, secure, and perfect world and environment. The age-old practice of blame shifting and justification was born. All of that implicit, all of that, listen, I I think accurately sums up what we experience on a regular basis because of our own sin. But I want you to notice something just really quickly. Do you remember what the judgment was upon Adam and Eve if they ate from the fruit of the tree? That they shall surely die. I think we have to believe that part of the reason that Adam and Eve were hiding and ashamed is because they believed that when God found them, their life was over. But God in his grace, listen, in the midst of this horror, God in his grace is actually sparing them what they rightly and justly deserve. Death would come, yes, but it is mitigated. It is going to be prolonged. But before we get there, just notice this in verse 14. He curses the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But God's curse upon humanity is striking. Notice what he says in verse 16 about the woman. He says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust are you, for you are dust, excuse me, and to dust you shall return. That the things that were designed to be good and satisfying are now also bringing pain and strife. The things designed to display God's glory will also now display the power and effects of sin. What once displayed only beauty now also displays great and tragic brokenness. He builds in, you have to see this, God builds into now the the human experience inherent reminders that all is not right with the universe. That God constantly is giving us these flashing signals, letting us know problem, 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 things aren't right, everything's broken. Sadly, we just so often get used to living with the sounds. The first curse that God levels upon our existence is this, the promises of pain in childbearing, the promises of a disordered marriage and disordered relationships. And this is, listen, the disruption of the very first designated task human beings were assigned before the fall, male and female, and the blessing of God to be fruitful and multiply, to increase in number, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. All of this was God's design and all of it here is infected and shattered because of the fall. The second curse which promises painful toil, which means this, listen, a disordered ecology. All of humanity, all of excuse me, creation is corrupted because of the fall. Thorns and thistles hard work and labor, by the sweat of your brow, there is painful toil, a disordered ecology, and there is certain death. Out of the dust you came to the dust you will return. This is a disruption of the second designated task that human beings were assigned before the fall, to be image bearers, ruling over the created order and living in perfect harmony with it. John Calvin says that after man's rebellion, our eyes, wherever they turn, encounter God's curse. The cosmos is infected with the destructive power of sin, so much so that Paul says that all of creation groans, groans with the effects of the fall, as do our hearts. And so naturally surrounded by this devastation with this inner groaning, with the brokenness that we experience in our lives, in our relationships, and in the world around us, it's, it's impossible to not see the destructive power of sin. We must then ask this last question, where do we go from here? George Orwell was the author of the tragic and brilliant and in many ways prophetic literary work, 1984, that dystopian perspective on the world, he makes this statement before his death. And honestly, it's an eerie sounding statement. He says this, if you want a vision for the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. 
And the idea there is that there is always going to be oppression. There is always going to be hurt and pain, and things are not going to get better. It's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. We have a cruel and vicious master in sin. But is this true? Is this statement true? Is this what we have to look forward to? A boot stamping on a human face forever and ever and ever? Is there any hope and any relief from sin's curse? Some of you at this point are saying, this is the most depressing Christmas series ever. <laughs> Look for a second, though, at verse 20 and 21. After God curses the ground and produces the pain and childbirth and the friction in relationships and all of the cosmos is infected because of sin, he says these words. He says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I just, I want you to hear the note of mercy and grace and kindness in this. Listen, on the heels, on the heels of the, the curse and the fall and sin comes a picture of hope and healing for those who are lost and broken. See, I don't understand. Don't, don't you see in their nakedness, they tried to cover themselves up. They tried to come up with a solution to make things right with God, to deal with their sin problem. But God looks at them in their nakedness and says, you don't have to do that. I will cover your nakedness. I will cover your shame and your guilt. Let me take care of the effects of sin. That's what he's saying. And so he, God, listen, God sacrifices the first animal. You know this? Pointing, listen, I really believe it, pointing towards the sacrificial system which will remind the people of God for thousands of years that God would provide a substitute life in the place of the sinner. That God would cover the sin of the sinner himself because they could not do it. And so in the midst of this horror of sin, God says, let me show you that I am a gracious God, and though you don't deserve it, this is grace. Let me be the one who points you towards hope and healing. But not only does he clothe them in suspending their sentence of death, an act of grace, but he actually, in verse 15 of chapter 3, foretells a time when the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent who led the couple astray. In verse 15, as part of the curse of the serpent, he says to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is unfolding in this very moment the picture of a cosmic supernatural battle that is being unleashed at this very moment. And it will be horrific, it will be a terrible battle, and the one who we look to would ultimately be hurt and crushed, his heel bruised, but in the process of his own suffering, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would bring about full and final victory over the one who plunged humanity into sin and over all of the effects of sin. 
God is saying, listen, the victory that I will bring about through a promised seed, through an heir to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, he will be the one who will set all things right. You see, when God said to the serpent, cursed are you, his promise brought hope to the world. Because when something is cursed, it is consigned to destruction. God has promised that evil will not stand. God's promise allows us to delete Orwell's last word. Sin's reign in the world is long, dark, and painful, but it will not last forever. Hallelujah. And from this point onward, throughout all the pages of the word of God, begins the search. Who is this one? Who is the promised seed who will be born of a woman who will bring an end to the curse? Who will destroy the serpent? Who will set all things right in this broken universe? But things, as you read through the Bible, listen, they're about to get worse before they get better. And all the way up through chapter 11, what we see is a reminder of the curse that still exists and the one has not yet come. In fact, flip to chapter five for a quick second. 10 generations, you see the genealogies are actually really important in scripture because they point us to the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. And 10 generations later, listen, after sin has begun to reign, after sin has begun to unravel the world, after murder and death and incest and debauchery have all come into the world and all kinds of wickedness rules on the earth, 10 generations later, a man named Lamech, who had lived in verse 28, 182 years, fathered a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, listen to these words, out of the ground the Lord, that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Pointing us all the way back to the very curse that fell on Adam and Eve. It is a note of hope, and by the way, Noah becomes a savior, a deliverer of sorts. Even the New Testament points back to Noah as a picture of Jesus Christ. A reminder, listen, to God, as, as the evil has spread across, across the, the globe in one sense, all of a sudden God sees the wickedness, and instead of destroying the whole earth and everybody with it, he saves a select group, Noah and his family, righteous Noah, but he wipes out the earth, showing, listen, that the only way he will fully and finally be able to deal with sin is to destroy what he made and to remake it in righteousness. The only problem is we know that soon after Noah gets his feet on land, he goes out and he gets drunk. You see, he's not the one. He's not the one. And so the longing throughout the pages of Scripture still exists. Noah simply prefiguring what God will do in full and the downward spiral continues all the way till Babel where mankind unites together in an effort to rebel against God, in an effort like Adam and Eve to be God instead of letting God be God. But in the midst of this, the whole point of the beginning chapters of Genesis is to remind us, listen, that hope remains. The one will come to put an end to the curse, but how will he do it? You see, listen, loved ones, in the final analysis, the greatest mercy of God is seen not in God's mitigation of our punishment, 
but in his taking on himself our full punishment. Which is why Adam and Eve, they weren't directly cursed. Did you notice that? They are never told that they themselves are cursed in the same way that their surroundings are. Did sin bring pain in childbirth? No pain is equal to that of Jesus who endured in pain in order that he might bring forth many children to glory. Did sin bring conflict? Jesus endured even greater conflict of sinners against himself for our salvation. Did thorns come in with sin? Jesus was crowned with thorns. Did sin bring sweat? He sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Do we know sorrow and suffering in this life? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did sin bring, did sin bring death? Jesus, as Hebrews 2.9 says, tasted death for everyone. Jesus took our curse. As Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, if we fail to understand the beginning of the story, we will never fully understand the significance of where it's going and how it ends. The story of Christmas is much larger, much bigger than it appears on the surface. It reaches to the very depths of the cosmos. So where do we go from here? We go to Jesus. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father, we long for that day when Jesus will return. Father, we thank you that in your kindness and in your grace, we experience now in Christ a foretaste of the new creation. In your grace, Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, that the curse of sin no longer has a hold on us. The shackles have been broken. Its power has been destroyed in our lives. And Lord, while we struggle with sin, it is no longer our master because, Father, you have come and delivered us. So, Father, we pray that we would be reminded this morning as we look towards Christmas that the, the hope of Christmas is the, a message of healing for the world. It's a healing for the universe, Lord, that has been broken and fractured by sin that God, in your love and kindness, you would come for us. So Father, may our eyes and our hearts be fixed upon you even now. Greater are you, O God, great in love and mercy and kindness and in faithfulness. Receive our praise and our worship now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.